Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host has recorded two full seasons of a podcast. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host has recorded two full seasons of a podcast. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Wednesday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are enjoying our beer in review, and we are drinking different things. So what are you enjoying today, Mr. Rao? I am returning to one of the first things we drank this year, and I am back on Iron Joe from Raw and Sons Brewing Company. And uh, my, uh, I, am, I am drinking the Boulevard Brewery's Rye on Rye Whiskey Barrel Aged Ale. I would like to give a uh, sort of a uh, honorable mention to two beers that I considered for today's uh, celebratory episode. The Shaffley Pumpkin Ale from episode 21 and the uh, Boulder Beer Company Shake Chocolate Porter from episode 29. But in the end, that whiskey barreled aged, uh, it's, it, it's tough for me to overlook that. If we're doing honorable mentions, I also want to give a shout out to Plaid Habit from episode 024. Uh, that was another good one, but it was a seasonal, so I couldn't find it for today. And now this, I, op- this episode is different from all the other episodes that we do throughout the year because this is our beer in review. We take a look back yeah. at all the beers we've drank, all the discussions we've had, and our professional growth uh, as educators and do a little bit of reflection because that's an important part of professional right. development. Yeah, we got to do that. Uh, so in our openings, we always like to do these fun little teasers where they're often related to who we are and what we talk about in the episode, although sometimes we get a little silly. Um, and so for folks who maybe have just started listening over the course of the last few episodes, they may not know much about us and all they ever hear is the silly the silly nonsense. And so... Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff. <laughs> I have a bachelor's degree in genetics from Iowa State University, seven years of experience in a molecular genetics laboratory. Uh, working on fruit flies and uh, uh, specifically um, exploring genes involved in histone modification, uh, which is involved in chromosome coiling. Uh, I then earned a um, Master's of the Art of Teaching in Secondary Science Education, also from Iowa State University. And I have been teaching high school science, primarily biology, uh, for the last seven years. And I'm Michael Ralph, and we met at the high school where I was teaching for a couple of years when you joined our department. Uh, my background is also in biology. I was trained at the University of Kansas through the You Can Teach program uh, during my undergraduate. So I have a bachelor's degree in biology, and I have a master's degree in chemical and life sciences that I obtained after I started teaching biology at Olathe East High School. I taught there for a number of years, teaching all manner of biologies. Um, freshman, I taught AP Biology for many years. I also ran a biotechnology program uh, where we were searching for methanotrophic microbes. So those are little uh, bacteria or archaea who eat methane, and that's a they live in a very complicated ecosystem, and so we were trying to get a handle on how we would grow and identify them in the lab. And it was a lot of fun, and it was and it was consistently challenging to everybody who was working on that project. Uh, but then a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to move back to the University of Kansas, and now I teach within the You Can Teach program that trained me all those years ago. And so now I am primarily responsible for it, being the instructor of research methods with these pre-service uh, science and math teachers. I don't do very much. I, yeah. I, I don't know. 
academic and professional history. That's all I did. Yeah, I can say I can read you my resume if you want. I, well, that's basically yeah. what I did. I didn't do these are the things that I did with my students in the classes that I taught while I was there. I just this is yeah. That's I don't know. I guess maybe I should. I don't know. Well, I mean. What what do you do? I mean, listing out every lesson maybe doesn't make sense, but there are some things in your classroom that are high points. I think. I I kind of have uh, informally. I, I fill the role as the uh, patron saint of lost clubs. <laughs> that, like, I'll get a student who's really passionate about something, and by the time they're a junior or a senior, they're confident enough to like do the paperwork and. <clears throat> do the uh the they'll do the the ground pounding and they'll recruit people and they'll need a room to talk to their people friends about their special interests and i'm just a pushover for an excited enthusiastic kid who wants to build a social space so i have been the robotics club guy no funding no materials we just sat around and talked about robots and i've been the quiz bowl club guy and we did not travel we did not compete we just asked each other a bunch of questions and i've been the cosplay club guy where kids would come in with their sewing machines and literally make costumes and uh, so I don't know what club I, I'll, I'll have this year, but that's a thing that that's a niche that I kind of kind of fill at my school because it's it's never a kid that I've had. It's never one of my students. It's always a kid who's been said no to like four or five teachers. And then one of them eventually says, go ask Woodruff. And yeah, because that's what I did. I, yep. I, I literally did that with one of the students who was like looking for, hey, well, this teacher said no. This teacher said, well, I, I don't have time for this, but I know who you can convince to do <laughs> yeah. it. So, uh, you know, who knows? It's always surprising. And hey, I learn things uh, because of the interest and enthusiasm of the students. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, I enjoy it. Yeah, seems good. Yeah. It feels so weird to not have a paper to go to. And I remember making the exact same comments last, last year also. But I... <clears throat> So let's go straight to those papers then, if that's the void in our hearts right now. Yeah. Um, what were the surprising, most impactful pieces of segments? I selected three that I have gone back to and thought about a lot since then. Uh, my pick number three is uh, from episode 26, Increasing the Visibility of Women in STEM by Brown, by Emery Brown, Harold Gilliam, and, uh, gosh, no, I don't know how to read these. Yeah, those are all last names. So by five people, <laughs> you can get the citation at the website for episode 26. Uh, increasing the visibility of women in STEM. That uh, wasn't a revolutionary paper, but a good reminder about representation, participation, and uh, improving our social awareness in the classroom. And so I've challenged myself that any time I mention any scientist, I make sure that if I'm mentioning a scientist that looks like me, I also draw attention to a scientist who does not. Uh, because the the historical practice is actually very different from the historical account, so we need to account for everybody's participation. Yeah, that's a that that episode came right after zero twenty five when we hosted uh, Jen Bennis as a guest on our show, and uh, she joined us to talk about issues of. Um, gender inequality and racism in the history of education and in the history of our society. And that sort of began a couple of months of some of our citations were related to those topics, but also some of my other work just broadly started to include more explicitly some of those topics and really started to shape the way that I thought about my participation in STEM uh, because of the identities that I bring to the table. And so some of the blind spots I have for others who don't share those identities, you know, they're, 
uh, I am a white man, I am cisgendered, I am able-bodied, I am heterosexual. And so uh, I tried to think about that, but it was really a moment where I shifted to explicitly identifying all of those identities that I hold for myself so that I can be more conscientious of folks who don't hold those, uh, who don't share some of those identities and what their experiences might be and how they might be different from mine. In particular, uh, I think that was the episode where we had the discussion of um, the use of mononyms being more heavily associated with males in history than females in history. Yeah. Uh, and that, you can even hear it on the tape, it was that was causing me some deep, deep disequilibrium because I really like using mononyms. Uh, but it was totally true that I wasn't using them the same across both genders, and so I've had to stop that. It still feels weird in my mouth sometimes to not use them the way that I used to, but it was, it w I, have been, I have been working on it. It's right. Been, it's been an area that I've been trying to get better. Uh, and that's affecting me too, that very discussion, because uh, that's a goal for this, for me in the fall, is that I have this, I have this habit of saying, uh, Mr. Mister Last Name, Miss Last Name, this, that, you know, and uh, I have decided to keep the formal um, titles uh, as, you know, uh, preferred by the students as, as they communicate their preference for those titles, uh, but also to go to their first names. I'm going to go to their first names. Uh, instead of, instead of, uh, Mr. Smith, we're going to say, uh, Mr. Aaron, because uh, uh, that's his first name. So I'm going to, I'm going to switch it up because of that, uh, historical, um, imbalance in how those names are used, which will be new and a challenge. And I will do my best to enjoy it and get better. So what was your number two? Uh, my number two, uh, from episode 27. Identifying teachers' supports of metacognition through classroom talk and its relation to growth in conceptual learning. Uh, that citation is on the website for episode 27. Zapeta et al. Mono, mononym right there. So anyway, uh, that paper also stuck with me uh, about prompting students' thinking and drawing attention to uh sort of not just problem-solving strategies, but also uh, awareness of, of the process of thinking, that drawing students' attention to it is good for them, and sometimes just directly commanding them to do it is good for them. Think about this actually results in more students thinking about it, as opposed to just uh, throwing questions out in the air. So sometimes they need a direction, they need scaffolding, especially when those metacognitive skills are not well practiced, they need more direction in, in developing it. And since that's what I want to do with my students, I need to be a little more critical about how I direct them to think about their thinking. Uh, you queued you queued three. I, I queued three. I, I don't have three, but as I'm sort of pondering more on segments that affected me, uh, especially this one affected me more as a education communicator than it did as an education practitioner. But uh, my time, my time with Shane hosting the month that you weren't here. And then directly following that, we had uh, Yuki Shirata join us as a guest. And so discussions with both of those people who are themselves um, highly focused on education communication, and especially working with Shane while you were not here, uh, really broadened my perspective and re-centered me on concerns of people I hadn't been thinking as much about. Um, you and I do this show every month, aside from that one. 
and uh, I've really become reliant on your contributions and your approach and the way that you participate in this podcast. And so uh, having Shane join as that guest host that month uh, really sort of disrupted some um, some settling, some equilibrium that I was starting to feel at that time. And so I really appreciated the opportunity to struggle with Shane, and uh, he did a great job. Um, he did a really great job joining in, um, in a difficult time for us as a podcast. And so uh, that was a moment where I got to recenter on things are not exactly what you think they are. You're ignoring some things that matter. You're making some assumptions that are inappropriate. And so uh, going back to a more uh, holistic perspective of what we do here. And so that was that was really useful for me um, to have a conversation with somebody who wasn't you. So Yay. so thanks, Shane. Thanks for being, being willing to jump in. Uh, and I will also note we drank Big Wave uh, at his suggestion on that episode. And one of my one of my good friends who comes over, he also loved that beer uh, when I gave him my couple of leftovers, and he started drinking it weekly. Uh, so uh, shout out to Matt, um, Shane, you got you you helped connect somebody to a beer that you love, and he loves it now also. Well, uh, the paper that stuck with me the most, the paper that I, I'm uh, kind of afraid of, the paper that like lingers in the back of my mind asking, what are you doing with your life, was from episode 21. It was essentially a position paper, a white paper from uh, the, the New Teacher Project, oh. the Opportunity Myth Executive Summary. The paper that basically said, we tell students that if we do what we ask them, they will learn things and be prepared for their future, and then they go and fail out of college anyway. That is essentially the, the bitter nutshell version of what that paper was, and that paper sticks with me. It's a paper that says, you're making these choices, you're doing these things in your classroom, but are you actually challenging your students to experience cognitive and developmental growth? Are you actually doing that? Uh, and that question is now kind of, uh, I, I don't wanna use the word haunting me, but I think it's an appropriate question to have in the back of your mind. What are your goals for students? That, well, if that is your goal for a student, are you actually doing it? There's, oh my gosh. And I, I am, I don't even know that I can describe the emotion that I feel. I am emotion that you brought up that paper uh, because that that TNTP paper has been something that's been on my mind, especially recently after we after we did the episode on it. Um, we taped even even at the time we put on record um, that this was not a peer reviewed publication. Right. It was a white paper, white paper, so we sort of took it at face value and yeah. discussed it. And uh, you're right, the 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 call to action is reasonable. Are we are we actually preparing them? I I accept that you know that call to make sure that we are providing the things that we think we're providing. Uh, but I we almost even scheduled that for a follow up segment a couple of times. Uh, since we did that episode because uh, more has come out from that organization and about that study in particular. But, you know, it wasn't peer-reviewed, so there are some concerns about the statistical methods that they used to make the claims that they did or about the sample sizes that they used and the sample quality, you know, the credibility of the materials that they used to make the claims that they did. And so there are a lot of concerns floating around about that particular report and the findings that they think that they can defend. 
in that paper, and uh, that's all related to the absence of peer yeah. review. And so we had we just did take them at their face uh, at face value, and uh, some of that maybe is not as well uh, as well founded as we had hoped it would be. And so uh, I, I personally, I'm the one who makes the decisions about what uh, what content we tape every month. And so I really wrestled with, uh, and even there were times where it was scheduled yeah. uh, to go back and take a look at some of the critiques that had been written about that report and talk some more about uh, the um, the mismatch in some of the things that are going on. We just, we never did tape it. We had other things that we chose to do. But uh, I really wrestled with that because you're right. The the call is reasonable. Yeah. Are we preparing them as something that we should think about? And I, I'm still, I'm still good with that. Yeah, I'm still good with that call. Uh, but that paper is concerning, and that's a, you know, we had that one, and we had the paper last month about, um, in that the journal that had some concerns about the quality of its peer review. Yeah, and uh, we always reach out to the authors to let them know that we discussed their papers and to make them aware and offer a chance for them to comment. Uh, we didn't hear from last month's author yet. Uh, and TNTP did some social media engagement, but they didn't do any actual discussion with us about the the, the comments that we made. And so, I I feel like if we only discuss things that are in the mainstream, what good are we doing, right? Like that, right? We should talk about other things. But that TNTP paper, man, I, it keeps me up at night sometimes yeah. thinking about talking about things that um, maybe have talking about things that aren't one hundred percent rock solid. We only have so long to talk about it. So if I pointed out every single flaw that I think I saw in every paper, this would be a really boring show, and it wouldn't have much use to anybody. For many people, it's boring already. That's a fair statement. So, um, so uh, that that paper is tough for me. So, uh, so sure, maybe maybe their stats weren't as bad. Maybe the problem isn't as scary or as bad or as big as they considered. But when you you know, we're human, so we're driven by narrative. And so even the narrative of I could be a teacher who gives my kids a uh, crossword puzzle with words from the 60s, or I could have them analyze these different pieces of, of art written from different perspectives uh, dealing with uh, race, socioeconomic status, and privilege uh, from that time. I could do both of those things. One of those is superior than the other. And so, if anything, that paper just reminded me that, you know, I can do better. And regardless of, of, of any of that, from the narrative perspective of that paper, I was moved. And so in that regard, as a white paper, it did its job for me. And I'm thinking about what I can do in my classroom to further push my students and to not be complacent and assume that the decisions that I've already made are the right ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, and again, I accept all of the value on that. I'm going to push back just a little bit because we've had this this year we've had several papers that made their their thesis has not been disagreeable to us. We've been like, yeah, sure, you made a claim, and we also we accept that claim. But the way that you get to that claim is terrible, and we've had that happen a couple of times. And I think that it degrades the quality of conversation if all of your missteps in getting to a claim are forgiven as long as I agree with the claim. I think that that is a problem. Uh, I think it's a problem in our profession. I think it's a problem on edgy Twitter in particular, which is a thing you don't have to worry about, but it's a thing that matters to me. And so uh, I want to think about that. And I don't want to be afraid of talking about papers that I may not end up not liking. 
but I also want to be responsible about talking about papers that are worth sharing. And that tension is something that's real to, it's real to both of us because we've had conversations about that, but it's particularly real to me and it's something that uh, I stress about often for this show. And so uh, listeners, how we do it, I don't know. I, I don't know. I want to know if there are papers you think we should talk about or if there are papers you think we shouldn't have talked about. Uh, that's something that has mattered to me. Uh, yeah, I cannot disagree with that critique. I was just recounting a personal story on that very particular issue very recently that someone being vindicated because they happen to be empirically correct, but their logic for being correct was completely wrong. It's infuriating to me. So I suppose, uh, I suppose I understand that critique. To be careful, Woodruff, a good narrative that is not based in facts is a bad narrative. So I accept, I accept that caution. Nevertheless, you know, I'm just a big teddy bear and I want my kids to do good. <laughs> so it makes me sad if I'm not doing a good job. Make better mistakes. So what was it like hosting this year? Oh my gosh. So that season two was so much different than season one because it, the shine is off the apple, so to speak, right? Like that's, it's not some weird new thing that we've been doing. I get to explain to everybody that we have a podcast. Like most people in my life know that I have a podcast and that's not interesting anymore. And so, uh, getting into the grind of just doing it every month, it's just a thing that we always do. It's a thing that we schedule and we think that I find a way to get done. Um, normalizing it was I think good for me I think let's let's make this thing that a thing that's real as opposed to a thing that's interesting right now so it was a grind but I can I say that and yeah be, can I say that and have it be a positive like yeah well you know growth requires struggle and and uh we become we decide who we're going to be when we grow up not not based on the ideas in our head but on what we do the actions we take and, you know, ants build anthills because they incrementally move dirt. So it's a grind, but it's a grind worth building. It's a worthy goal worth paying the price for. So, uh, yeah, hard work. Things that are worth doing are hard. So, yeah, it was yeah. a grind. And the thing, that I, the thing that I noticed consistently this year was uh, we've, we've had a lot more guests this year than we did last year. We had a lot more guests. And uh, those relationships and connections have persisted. And I've had ongoing interactions with a lot of the folks who have joined us on the show this past year, um, not only as podcasters, as ed communicators, but the researchers. We had ongoing dialogue, and I've grown from the work that they've done and been able to contribute back uh, in some instances uh, to the larger conversation. And so um, this platform and the, the relationships that we're attempting to grow between researchers and practitioners has felt more fruitful this year than it did last year. Um, those connections have led to more and have impacted more classrooms and more students and so um, I'm really excited for that it's not new and so things are maturing and things are starting to bear fruit and that that really made me happy we've had more interviews and not only that those interviews have been meatier uh, and that means uh, there's the transcripts are longer <laughs> so as the person that creates the transcripts I actually had a, a great increase in post-production work on my end uh, I, I have 
I've characterized this as Michael Ralph's driving the motorcycle and I'm I, I'm in the sidecar, but I actually had to do a little bit of uh, driving a little bit in the transcript region. It's a, it's a little more work than just showing up drinking and, and talking about stuff. Uh, and so that was interesting. You know, we've got robots that'll make the transcript, but that transcript is terrible. So it actually takes quite a bit of time to edit that to something that is worth sharing. So uh, that was new and I'm okay with it. It's a grind. Be determined to pay the price of a worthy goal, man. My man Epictetus. So it's fine, um, but that was different. Uh, every month also, it seems like there was a new sound issue that I never heard. Uh, Ralph, over and over again, you would tell me, hey man, oh, I'm just sorry about the sound quality. It's like, I didn't notice anything. You know, it was had this tinny quality, or was there, there was this buzzing, or you were too loud, or the levels were this. I have no idea. I never noticed that. And then I realized half of that is true, because you are editing the best 45 minutes. So if there are sound disasters, when I'm listening to the episode, I'm listening after you've fixed those problems. So I'm sorry that there are so many sound issues that I participate with and, and don't even know, uh, but I understand that you are fixing them and I appreciate your work for that. Uh, this segues into my third thing. Basically, another comment about your editing. I feel in general that when I'm listening to the the cut, the discussions are actually pretty smooth. They flow into each other. And though that's three hours cut into 45 minutes, the, the actual experience doesn't sound or feel like the episodes. So you're like turning this just randomness into a piece of product or art that is meaningful. It's like you're, you're spinning straw into a podcast. And uh, I appreciate that effort, man. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because... You mentioned the experience is not what the show sounds like, and that is 100% true. And especially with the guests, I felt that more frequently because it's a guest time. Like, we, can, we only have them for who, when we have them. And so we'll talk with somebody like, oh, man, that was choppy and it was awkward and these comments didn't feel great and everything was everything was terrible. And then we cut it, cut it up and we make it fit together. And like, oh this was pretty good. And so like, I have started to just categorically reject my emotional reactions to the taping process. Like, oh, this was awkward and choppy and terrible. Sh show will probably be good. It'll probably be and right. The show would be terrible if it were three hours long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that would not be worth anyone's time. So there you go. I wonder, oh, gosh, I, I go back to the opportunity myth. Like, what if the ratio of my classroom time is the same? Oh my gosh, <laughs> how terrible is that? I gotta do better. Uh, do, you, do you spend four and seven minutes standing silently at the front of your classroom trying to decide what the next thing to do is? Joking about side stories that have absolutely no relevance yeah. to what we're doing in the classroom? Oh, man. Uh, no, you, you put in two and a half hours before class starts to get all of that awkwardness out so that your best 45 minutes is the last 45 minutes. Oh, man, you are absolutely right. I do that. I do that. Thanks. That makes you feel good. Yeah, that's interesting because that's, I said at the moment I thought of it, and that's, that's reality. That's, that is We reality. have three minutes for 45 good ones, three hours for 45 good ones, so just put them at the end and front load all of your prep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you're right. Makes it feel good. Cool. Well, uh, I mean, second So, ide ideal vision of the show. Um, so, how are we doing? We're two seasons in. How are we doing t in making progress towards our best version of what this podcast ought to be? And we we have super different visions of what this podcast is and yeah. how it fits into our lives. It's so true. Should it's, we talk about our visions yeah. of the podcast? Yeah, I want that. You? I feel like you should go first. Because I think mine, I think yours is 
closer to what people think podcasts are for. Uh, that's probably true. Um, man, I, I sat in my, I sat in a job interview and when asked, what do I want to do as an educator? I gave the straight faced response, change the shape of education in this country. And that is actually what I think my job is. Like, that's what I think my job is. Uh, and that's a huge bite. Like that is remarkable hubris on my part to believe that that's what my purpose is here. Uh, but that is what I'm working on. I want to make education better. Students are important and they are worthy of a high quality experience. And my students are important, but everybody's students are important. And so when you really internalize that everybody's students are important, then the work is broad. The work is make the system really good and incremental improvement in the system spread across hundreds of thousands of students is a greater impact than a huge change in only my 100. It just, I think that that's what the arithmetic is. And so when we lost our opportunity to collaborate as professionals who share a department, that was a huge loss to me. And so when we decided to make this podcast in order to sustain that piece of our professional relationship um, and we were going to tape it, what's the best way to use these discussions is make them available to as many people as possible. And making them available to as many people as possible means making it appealing so that people choose to listen to it and then have it offer as much value as possible. And so that's this show in its best form is something that the maximum number of educators find valuable and find actionable and is in alignment with what the best sources of professional growth say. And that, that is research. That is primary research first and foremost, especially because research is one of the least leveraged opportunities for shaping classroom practice in my perception. And so this show is att attempts to bridge that gap. And I think that we are getting a lot better. Our engagement with researchers is improving. And I think that's, a, that's awesome. I think that's awesome in making that available to classroom educators. Uh, and so I think we're getting better. Uh, the quality of the show needs to be good so that people listen. And that needs to include representing really high quality opportunities for professional growth. And I think that that's getting better also. So we're getting there, I think is my answer. I We've made a reasonable amount of growth in a year. I don't know. Uh, so if Michael Ralph is the uh, education evangelist of this duo, I am the aesthetic hermit, aesthetic hermit monk of the duo because I do this to help me be a better teacher with the third, with the 120 kids I have from year to year. Uh, as soon as doing this makes me a worse teacher, I'm going to quit. But that's not the case. Right now, I'm getting exposed to education research that informs my practice and changes me and challenges me to get better. And so my next year, my eighth year teaching, I expect it to be fully superior than my seventh year teacher. There may, I may do some things worse, but I'm going to do some other things a lot better. And I'm excited about doing that. I'm excited about trying that. And so for me, this is entirely a practice of dialogue and reflection to become a better practitioner. And uh, that's why kind of that's why Ralph's driving the motorcycle and I'm in the sidecar. As long as I'm in the sidecar, I'm traveling forward and um, I enjoy having a partner to challenge me and point out things that are different from my perspective, to give me considerations that I wouldn't consider and to point out research that I wouldn't normally read. So uh, I am doing this to become a better teacher that's it. I think you can hear that even in our discussion month over month. Uh, when we talk about what the research means or how we're, how we're interpreting it, 
my interpretations are often generalized. They're like, yeah. hey, here's what this means, and here's how it would affect classrooms. And I think you hear your framing as my classroom would be this, and my practice would be that. Yeah, uh, I think you can hear that in the way that we approach these this literature. And I think it is good to have both. Yeah, I think I, it's good to present both of those very different interpretations to the listeners because everybody listening is going to have they're going to be in their own place on that spectrum. Yeah. Thumbs up. Yeah. I'm glad you still feel like you're getting better. I, yeah. believe, I believe that you won't show up the first month that you decide, this isn't making me better anymore. No. I uh, actually, if it's neutral, I'll probably still do it because I enjoy it. Uh, and so there's some positive there. But if I feel like the cost of doing this makes me a worse teacher, instantaneously we are done. Yeah. We are done. Uh, I don't see that happening. Um, I don't see that happening. But the future is crazy. Uh, the future is crazy, but man... When would I believe that I've perfected teaching? I, when I'm, well, but opportunity cost matters. I suppose so. so. Who we'll knows what crazy external pressures will be placed upon you? Yeah, that's true. Who knows? You never know. Empower each other. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about our year as teachers. How did your job change this year? Let's both do some focusing on our day jobs, shall yeah. we? Um, how did how did your job change this year? So uh, I actually did not work very much this year. My seventh year teaching on curriculum and activities and scaffolding, uh, I didn't really work on that very much. Like the as far as. Uh, lessons and curriculum goes some an outsider would look at my room and say yeah he basically did the same thing he did last year but what was different is my observations of students my observation of student interactions my relationship building with students and being able to identify students with um i guess my differentiation i guess if we want to distill it to one word my ability to observe my students and differentiate and scaffold students individually is what I did better this year, is what I really worked on and changed. And that was very different than my sixth year of teaching. Uh, so, you know, if you were just asking, what did you do in your classroom? I would say I did the same things, except that I didn't really, because my interaction patterns with my students was far different. I also did a lot of professional development at my school level about understanding uh, mental health issues of my students. And then I had some circumstances where I was able to employ uh, some of that in my classroom uh, due to some complex situations that occurred at my school. So uh, I really, it felt like I was dealing more with students than lessons and scaffolding and uh, content. Uh, and so my that part of my job was different. And it's because I was able to be comfortable with the content and comfortable with the experience so that I was able to observe new things in my classroom that I'm sure had always been there, but that I was not aware of. My year was different in all sorts of ways because this is only my second year in my current job. And your first year is always crazy in most teaching jobs. Um, I can't justify that. My first year was crazy. 
just like my first year teaching in the high school setting was crazy, my first year teaching at the higher uh, at the higher education level was also crazy. And so being in my second year, having things not be brand new, uh, I also sort of diversified my attention. I had uh, some new teaching assignments in the first semester of this past school year, uh, but then those were stable from first to second semester. And so uh, I did lots of other things to sort of push myself, push what was happening in my classroom and push my ability to support what's happening uh, regionally in the education scene here. And so, you know, I got a grant funded and used that money to develop some new modeling curriculum, which was something that I did I knew very little about when I started. And so I did a lot of learning about what it meant to build that mathematical tool and then use it in the classroom and then share it with other people. And I'm really proud of the work that I, I did with Abdal and the two of us uh, have shared it on the website. And I'm really excited that we did that. Um, I've done some writing. I've done a lot of writing, uh, preparing a lot of different manuscripts uh, at various stages of publication. Uh, three of those are with undergraduate students I've had in class. Uh, and so publishing some of their work together is my absolute favorite thing to do ever. If I could do 100% of my time writing publications with students I've taught in class, I would take it in a heartbeat. It was the best thing ever. Uh, so Hannah and my paper is out and we've got a couple others under review, under one of them under review, one of them still in preparation. And it is just the best. Making research available to students that is publishable is sort of feels like the culmination of the last 10 years of my education practice. And let's, let's put authentic science in the freshman biology classroom. And then let's, let's build a biotechnology program that does what researchers do. And then let's go to the university level and train undergrads and what researchers do. I mean, really the logical conclusion is eventually you should be doing the research, right? If you're doing that, you should get the end of that road should be published research. And so I'm really excited that we are approaching that place and I want to live here. I don't know. I don't know how to get an address in this place, but I want to. Uh, and so it's been really exciting to kind of build out the rest of what I think I'm going to be doing within this place at the university. Uh, I'm also starting a new program. Um, Maker education is going to be a much bigger thing for me this coming year. And so laying a lot of that groundwork happened this past semester. And so um, sort of because my teaching assignments have been relatively stable, I've been able to build the rest of my ecosystem of kind of, I like to be busy. That's a thing that you know about me. And so uh, putting all those other pieces in place so that I can be sort of a complete mosaic again has been uh, has been where I spent a lot of my time this last this last school year. Now we do other stuff. Uh, what's something new that you've tried? Aside from MATLAB, because yeah. <laughs> I've done a lot of math in the last year. Uh, I don't know. What's, what's something that you're trying? Uh, well, something new that I did try this past season. Um, I have been comfortable doing uh, labs that have been multi-day labs, sometimes extending into a week or a week and a half, where I just give students this experience and say, explore it, measure it, notate it go and i and i've been free that way in the past but uh this and it's it's my seventh year teaching for a for a science teacher this is really late in the game to be doing this uh this past year was the first time that i did a long-term measurement lab where hey on this date we're going to take a measurement and then we're going to wait a week and then we're going to take another measurement after that and we visit this change over the course of a quarter and what was great about that is that uh the students get familiarity with the materials. It doesn't actually take that much time. You know, you have your initial experience of setting it up, which is a huge 
time investment. But then after that, you know, it takes like 15 minutes. You just go out, let the kids take the measurement, come back, and you, and you carry on a day. You do that once a week, and they get all this measurement. But it also is classic um, uh, interleaving because we're moving on with content, but we're going back to this other thing, and then we can draw connections between the reason why we're doing this in the first place and then what new things we're learning now. And we are able to see that particular uh, phenomena in an ongoing changing context. Uh, and so it allows them to draw significance for this to things that I never anticipated they would draw significance or even intended that they would draw significance to. So that was really uh, meaningful and valuable to me. And of course, for those that are in you know science teaching, this is not revolutionary. This has been established as the research as something that is good and you should do for a long time. And so it's me finally dragging myself to that space, but I am, I, I was able to concretely see the benefits and I am more likely to engage and repeat in this practice in the future. And I feel good about that. So what is something new next year that you intend to try? But uh, it's not all that glamorous because the new thing to try, I'm starting a new program next year. So there's going to be all sorts of new stuff that I'm trying uh. next year. Uh, with the You Can Make program, it's a maker education uh, micro-credential that we're doing within the You Can Teach program. It's something that is, I, I'm doing it. I, I have made it, fabricated it from the ether. Uh, we've got uh, we've got a uh, an original program in Texas that is uh, lending us a lot of support and they're providing sort of an original framework where that is highly modified for how we're going to use it here. And so we're going to be recruiting in the fall. We're going to be um, doing things in the spring. And it, that is a complicated process. You know, maker education is so uh, synthetic. It's so interdisciplinary. There's a lot that goes into it. And so the community partners, the education partners, uh, just planning, there's just so much that's going into getting ready so that we can be um, ready to go for our pilot semester next uh, next semester. Um, Drew Ising, one of our other um, guest hosts, he's doing it with me. We're doing it in his uh, in his school district um, the this this spring, and so I'm I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I, it's going to be really valuable, and we're going to make so many mistakes, and we're going to address them as they come up, and hopefully make it better the following semester. Uh, but it's. I really think maker education is an opportunity to unlock creativity within uh, STEM, within STEAM, um, but specifically in the sciences. Uh, I think that's an opportunity to communicate to young budding scientists that creativity has a role. It's not, it's not allowable in science, it is required in science. You must be creative to solve some of those wicked problems that you encounter as you're trying to address your research questions. And so you have to know how to make things, you just, you just do. And so being able to cultivate that and to grow a love of that um, while they're still developing their understanding of their discipline, I think is really important. And so I'm looking forward to devoting a lot of my time to that. Empower each other. We're through the show notes, so... Let's end the show. Uh, this is where we would say, how's the beer? But these are not new beers to us. The beer is great! It's so good! It's sweet! It's got this whiskey aroma. It has this... Again, it's a sweet taste. It's got that heavy alcohol. I'm very drunk. It's super nice.
Yeah. And the the Iron Joe, I mentioned this was not my first choice. I liked a lot of several of the seasonals we drank this year. But this one, once I got it open, I was enthusiastic about consuming it again. So, uh, uh, yeah, I I owe you an apology, Rar and Sons, because this is, in fact, a fantastic beer. And how lucky for me that I chose to drink it again. Huzzah. Yeah. Uh, and this marks two years of podcasting yeah. for us on this show, which uh, is a little hard to believe. Well, hard to believe. It is. But here we are, and uh, we'll be embarking on season three next month. I'm excited. We've got we've got a couple of guests coming on who I'm really looking forward to talking to next month. And so we'll start things with a bang once again. And so we, as we wrap up season two, remember you can always catch up with any of our previous episode references or check out the things that we've been drinking on our website, Two Pint PLC. Or if there's something that you want us to check out or maybe a topic that we can address in one of the episodes on season three, make sure that you let us know in the comments. You can find me on social media or even just send us an email. We are looking forward to doing our third season starting next month. And so, as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.